Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. So welcome to this week's podcast. This week, we are talking to Vita Tsikun, who was the scenic and costume designer for Faust that I just worked on in Portland, which is how I met her. Uh, a little bit of background about Zita. She does sets and costumes and projection design, I think, for, for companies all across not just the United States, but the world as well. She's worked in Russia, in Norway. In America, she's done Santa Fe Opera, LA Opera, Seattle, Minnesota, Dallas, uh, Philadelphia. She's been in Ireland. She, I feel like she's been everywhere. I was trying to <laughs> pull up, you know, key places from her resume. And it's just like every opera company I've ever heard of, Zita, uh, Vita has worked there. So how, Vita, how did you start in theater? What I, I guess two big things that I love about you is you are not from the United States. You're from Russia in Israel, I believe. USSR in, in Israel, um, yeah. So did you start doing theater there? Were you interested there? What what kind of piqued your interest and brought you to scenic design, especially because there's so few female scenic designers out there? Well, I grew up in a very um, artistic family and uh, my father, when he was around my age now, was a scenic and costume designer. And oh, wow. uh, I practically grew up in his studio and he, <laughs> you know, when my mom was busy working as a pianist for a ballet company. She worked as an accompanist uh, for the ballet company in Odessa, uh, Ukraine, which is where I'm from, uh, which at the time was USSR. Um, and so when mom wasn't able to babysit me, dad babysat me and his studio and his top floor of a theater that he was working on. Um, and over that uh, entire stage, there was a technical grid that was continuous um, metal technical grid so you couldn't really fall through it you know that's where mm -hmm. everything was uh, suspended from so uh, when he would just uh, get tired of me running around his studio he would just tell me to go and crawl over there on that uh, technical grid and so I and see what was <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> go, go lay over there uh, on top of the stage and see what's going on yeah so I spent hours just laying face down on this technical grid above the stage and just looking at the tiny little people you know for 40 feet below, just <laughs> moving tiny little pieces of scenery and rehearsing. And, you know, it, it for me, it was like, like toy theater, you know, because it was so tiny. Yeah. Um, and it was just fascinating. So I just spent hours there. And I think that um, that in conjunctions to designing sets and costumes and um you know i also in the first quarter of my life i was trained as a classical ballet dancer both in soviet union and then when we moved to israel i danced in the branch of the british royal academy of ballet um and i did that um, oh, wow. from seven to 17 um and then i had a pretty bad injury and so i had to stop dancing but i was uh, on stage really mostly for kind of the first part of my life um but uh, soaking in all the creative backstage world, um, both from being a young performer, but also from just seeing my dad uh, design and, you know, seeing my mom accompany the ballerinas and piano. And, you know, it just was a very artistic household. So it's kind of in my blood. <laughs> so you, I'd like to say you only do opera, but you don't. You do 
opera and theater, right? I do mostly uh, film and opera. I haven't done th straight theater in a very, very long time, actually. Um, so I, I did some dance and then I moved over to film, television, commercials, and then uh, I moved to opera. And I mostly concentrate on opera now with occasional film. Is it because of the music or is it like what draws you to opera? For me, it was the music because I love music so much that I knew I wanted to do something that involved music. Absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, music is a huge part of my life, again, since childhood, because I also studied piano since I was little, because both my grandma and mom were pianists. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, um, the thing is, what I found as a designer after almost, you know, kind of, what is it, like eight years working professionally after grad school, is that um, opera allows for the wildest... Uh, imagination output for designers um, because working in theater and in dance and in film, they all for various reasons um, are more restrictive as far as imaginative output for designers is concerned. Um, and I tried them all and uh, mm -hmm. kind of found that opera for now seems like the best outlet for um, imagination, uh, visual metaphor, uh, which obviously we used a lot of in Faust that you saw. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm not so keen on um, ultra realistic design necessarily. I mean, even though I often do it and I, I think there was a lot of interesting and valid aspects to it. Um, this is not why I necessarily get into design, you know, um, and I want to work in a field that allows for artistic expression that is not necessarily one-to-one -one linear interpretation of our reality. Mm -hmm. I agree with that opera, in opera, yeah. Because think opera allows that instead of the other one, like the other ones don't do it. Well, because people don't sing in real life, you know, and so by nature, the moment a performer appears on a stage and sings, you already suspend disbelief from the first moment, you know, so you already understand that you're not in reality, you know, that this is an alternate reality, this is a heightened reality, this is a metaphoric world. And so just that premise that people sing on stage um, <laughs> already sets that framework, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I never thought, I always, I mean, I've never thought about it that way, but the few times that I've done theater, straight theater, is I feel playwrights especially are so specific about how they want things to look or where people enter. And I feel like operas and musicals don't necessarily say that. There's no stage direction in the actual piece, which I feel makes it a lot easier yeah, I mean, me. there often are stage directions in the score, but typically you just ignore them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's very true, too. I mean, you read them, but then you most likely ignore them. Yeah. <laughs> you just dismiss it. Uh, so you said you've been working about eight eight years professionally, and I know you've worked no, I've been with... working for almost 15 years professionally now, but eight years right. before I got into opera, yeah. Oh, okay. So... I know just looking at your resume and working with you, you work a lot, obviously, with Kevin Newberry, who directed Faust. Uh, you do a lot of projects with David Adam Moore, and there's a number of a uh, couple other designers where I kind of want to go to you and David created a production. Is it, 
is it do you call it a production company no no it's an art collective Um, it's an art collective yeah can you tell us a little bit more about that like why did you guys decide to create this and what how does that function? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's than anything else I've ever seen. Yeah, it sure is. And we're still defining it every day. Um, <laughs> uh, well, the thing is that, you know, uh, both David and I are a little bit unorthodox in how we operate because uh, there is not many designers in the States, especially the design for both uh, stage and film and do both sets and costumes and production design. And there is definitely not many people like David who are both a high-level professional soloist opera singer and a electronic music composer and an animator and a video designer and photographer, cinematographer like David yeah. is. And, and high-level at every area. It's not yeah. like in you know little community theaters and then designing at the same time yeah it's not a hobby level i mean it, it was a you know the, the visual art was a huge part of david's life for many many years um but that was more of a personal uh creative release after rehearsals um when you know he would travel the world and sing and after a while you know it just his artwork became so good that i urged him urged them to share it with the world, you know, because it was just excellent. And then slowly but surely he started doing that. And now he's doing them both on a very high level, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we wanted to collaborate for the longest time and uh, we wanted to create an environment where there are no no clear boundaries between scenery and projection design and movement on stage um, where it's all very, very seamlessly interconnected because for us, there is no sharp delineation between the disciplines. It's all Mm -hmm. means of artistic expression, Mm -hmm. be it animation or being opera singing, you know, be it production design for a music video or clothing design for a character on performing on stage, you know, it's all means of artistic expression. And oftentimes, more often than not, what you see is that it's very clear when you go and see something on stage that there was a set designer who did his or her thing. Then there was a costume designer that came in and they did their thing. And then the lighting designer joined in later and kind of did their own thing. And maybe the video designer then came and put something on stage. So it's all very fragmented. Um, which makes the entire event really suffer because rather than have a cohesive storytelling where you can't really tell who did what and, you know, you shouldn't be able as an audience member to even dissect that. Right. Um, It's often, you can see that it's often, you know, things don't really align. Um, And so we discussed for the longest time of how to do projection mapping, uh, meaning that the video actually forms to the absolute finest contours of the set um, and how to do sound reactive video or how to do motion tracking video just so that it's completely homogenous, you know, so that you don't project on a rectangle that is a screen, but you actually make the set, whatever shape it is, light up and more through video, you know, so it's Mm -hmm. kind of a seamless event. Um, And then we do a lot of stuff that then is sound reactive and reacts to the music uh, with video um, and is seamlessly morphed uh, with the scenic pieces. And so we decided to create this art collective called Glimmer. Um, It's G-L-M-M-R and it stands from Giving Light, Memory, Motion and Relevance. It's an acronym. Um, And what it means really that we want to give 
video, which is a projection video, a voice as a storytelling voice rather than a decorative element um, in everything that we do. Um, and we've created multiple productions already that toured all over the U.S. just in the past three years. We're very, we're three years young, <laughs> um, but we created a multimedia production of Deventurizer by Schubert that David also performed in, um, mm -hmm. and then video designed it and the set designed it, costume designed it, and so that already went to, it was an Anchorage and in Atlanta and Des Moines and Portland most recently. And then it was in New York um, just in December. Um, and um, we created the largest production of The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Yes, I was looking at that. But, I did know. one production of that a few, uh, a few years ago and it was completely different than the, the pictures I'm seeing of your guys' production. But it looks, I, the one particular picture that I love is in the... I guess in their house where over yeah. on stage right is the very like this is obviously the wife's part of the house where everything is very neat and orderly and then over on stage left is his part of the house which is just like fragmented and no color and nothing kind of matches but you can see this is a table and chairs and windows uh, yeah that was a fascinating project to work on because again for us it's all completely tied to the psychology of the story and the psychology of the character and mm -hmm. the human condition of the character so in that particular piece the man who mistook his wife for a head the story is about a man who has a condition of visual agnosia for those who don't know what that means is that these people with these conditions um, when they look at something they only see geometric shapes they can't decipher what they are so a table would just be a rectangle or a square a cup of coffee would just be a circle somebody's face would be an oval with circles so they can't really decipher and so in this particular piece the um, protagonist he's an opera singer and it's a real life story who has this condition and he navigates his life with this condition through music. Um, and so he has kind of a breakfast song. So when he sings this song, he knows that the oval in front of him is most likely a cup of coffee and that the larger circle is probably a plate with breakfast, but he only creates this connotation because of music, because he sings the breakfast song. And so when I was designing the set of the living room, um, the area where the piano is, is completely naturalistic. Um, and because that's the music that gives him the, the context for his world. But the further away he gets from the piano, the further away he gets from the music, the color starts to drain from the set, the mm -hmm. shapes start breaking up. And by the time you get the furthest away from the piano on the stage left, it's just completely abstract geometric shapes that kind of fly away. Um, and of course his wife, hangs out a lot in the very realistic part of the set. Uh, but oftentimes she needs to cross to the other side as well um, and deal with his reality in that sense. So that's a great example of creating a visual metaphor on the stage um, that is not necessarily possible in film, for example, you know, most film. Yeah. Yeah. 
Did you guys use projections in that piece? We use projections a lot in that piece as a means of expressing the protagonist's inner world. And uh, the white part of the set, the one that was drained of color, actually uh, was used as a projection surface. So, for example, okay. during the scene where there is a chess game between okay. the, do the doctor that comes to visit him and him, uh, the doctor actually moves the chess pieces on the chessboard physically. Mm -hmm. But the protagonist plays the chess game in his mind and we see the chess figures projected appearing on the projection surface on these fragmented uh, white geometric shapes because that that's what he's in, in his head space. yeah yeah that's amazing that that piece that specific number is what sold me on it i had a company asking to do the show and i wasn't really interested in it so they sent me the music and i still remember i was like in the gym on the elliptical listening to the music and i got to the chess game and i just stopped and i just listened to the chess game and then I listened to it all again. And then I called the production manager and I said, okay, I'll come do the piece. Because that piece is just, that, that one, I don't know, there was something about it that was just really amazing to me. Yeah, and it's incredible. It speaks a lot. So how, before I jump to my next question, no, no, I'll jump to the next question. How did you get into to film and TV? Well, I have a master's degree in production design for film. Um, oh, and, and I okay. so, so I studied that, and that's part of my education. And um, I uh, at NYU, uh, we had a collaboration class with um, film producers and film directors that uh, went there uh, for their master degree in film. Um, mm -hmm. And I collaborated with a lot of these folks in school, and then we just continued working onwards uh, after that on multiple projects. Um, so I designed a couple of features. I designed some. I worked um, on designing uh, for TV. I worked with Lady Gaga designing her ABC Thanksgiving special. And then um, I did a, a lot of commercial work for TV. And that was, you know, that was kind of my the, the first period out of grad school. I was mostly doing that. And then after about eight years of that, uh, just uh, it became less interesting because really, if you think about it, the vast majority of television and film, uh, as far as design is concerned, is extremely naturalistic. Yes. And um, in the beginning, it was really interesting for me to see if I can recreate somebody's living room on a soundstage in a studio or transform a location um, as a production designer. Um, I've never really done costume design for film because that's really just shopping. You know, it's really mostly <laughs> styling. It's you're not really <laughs> designing yeah. so much. Um, but I've done a lot of production design for film. And in the beginning, it was very interesting. It taught me to be extremely detail-oriented. Um, because obviously when, you know, you work for film, the camera can get very, very up close. Um, and so my attention to detail was very much developed during these eight years that I worked in film and TV. And, um, but after a while, yeah, I mean, you know, I just felt that there is not that much creative output for me. And um, I just wanted to move to a medium that does allow it, which is when I started working for opera. Your design to detail is what I loved so much. I mean, there were so many things that I loved about this production of Faust that we did, but your design to detail was what I found particularly amazing because so many opera designers that I work with, I feel, you know, use the 50 foot rule. Mm -hmm. If it's 50 feet away, it looks okay. And for me on Faust, I would just walk around the set on a regular basis and just like get as close as I could to all these different pieces because you and John Frame put so much detail into every little thing. And I felt like the audience was missing half of it because they couldn't see like every little into the stage like I could when I walked up, up to it. How was it 
working with John Frame on that project, have you, was that the first time that you've worked with another designer to make their work come to life? Or uh, you- yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's a two-part question. So the, the attention to detail, you know, the thing is, first of all, I firmly believe that uh, it extremely it's extremely helpful for the performers on stage. So mm-hmm. even if the audience doesn't see all the detail, uh, the performers on stage do because they're in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more convincing their world is, the more convincing they will be for the audience. Um, that's... First of all, that's the most important. And then, you know, in our age where everything is being photographed and everything is being filmed, um, it's almost impossible or kind of irresponsible to use the 50-foot rule because our artwork is so fleeting in live theater and Mm -hmm. live opera uh, that the only thing that really remains are the production photos. Right. And the video trailers. That is the only thing that remains. And if you just use the 50-foot rule, um, then the work would look absolutely horrible in photos and videos. And that is not the accurate representation of what it looked like to the audience. You know, because... Yeah. And that's, they, that's not yeah. what you want to see 20 years from now. Well, yeah, but also, you know, the thing is that... Um, you need the reason you need to put so much attention to detail now when everything is filmed and videoed is because the, the way the camera sees it uh, is has to be the same way as the audience sees it, and it's very tricky to to, to tricky. achieve. You know what I mean? But but that's why you need to learn how to both have attention to detail and work in large enough scales so that the audience will see the shift in colors or the shapes and, you know, so it's not too minuscule, but you kind of really need to do both, which makes that actually very, very difficult. And the more I, years I work in it, the more um, experience I get, you know, but I'm refining that balance every time for every production. Uh, It's, it's very tricky. Um, Mm -hmm. And as far as working with John Frame, that was the first time I ever worked with another um, artist and, um, it was really interesting working with him because John um, is a sculptor and an animator. He never designed for stage. And so he actually told me that he has no idea how to design a set for this piece. And he's not really interested in it uh, because, yeah. he, you know, um, and also, for example, he doesn't sculpt women. He doesn't design any female characters because oh, his right. work is largely autobiographical. And so it wasn't as much as bringing John's vision to life as being inspired by his aesthetic and then collaborating with him because the scenic design is entirely mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the costume design is really kind of split three ways between a very faithful realization of some of John's character um, in case of the four devils that assisted Mephistopheles. I went to great length to replicate these as faithfully as possible to John's remarkable sculptures, um, to very tight collaboration in um, the design for the character of Mephistopheles, uh, because we both collaborated on designing the fabrics for it that was custom printed. So John drew the plaid and I colorized all of it. And then we had it custom printed both for Mephistopheles and for Faust. And then we designed the costume together and John created it in sculpture form and we recreated it in normal human form. Um, <laughs> Actual um, fabrics. 
Yeah, and then you know, and then all the female character designs that were purely mine because John doesn't really see those, you know. And so it was really interesting to find that balance of how to how to collaborate together, you know. And it took a while, but uh, what I love about John is he's extremely collaborative and ego-free human being. Mm-hmm. And so we just worked with it and through it. And um, it wasn't easy, but it was never uh, unpleasant. You know what I mean? It was It was always any time we would come up to something that had to be tackled. It was always tackled in the most creative and interesting way. Right. And positive way. And that's always, yeah. Another thing that we all, we all actually talked about so often in, in Portland is just how, like you said, not easy it was, but nobody ever felt, I guess everybody felt supported and everybody felt like they were being heard and it was such a positive experience. Yes. And I have to give the credit for that to Kevin Newbury, who really always sets that environment of um positive interaction and um abil- you know ability of everyone on the creative team and the tech teams to uh, express their opinion you know and the best idea wins that's his philosophy and i think that it's a very healthy one right cuz it cuz the arts are such a collaborative process yeah absolutely absolutely so how you made a comment to me, I think it was one of the times we were trying to figure out an interview, uh, that as a female, most often people assume that you're the costume designer without knowing anything about you. Uh, <laughs> yes. And this is something that Stacy and I talk about on a regular basis. Stacy's a technical director, you know, and she'll show up to a theater as a technical director and people see that she's a female and then just assume she doesn't know what she's doing sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So how, how, how have you experienced that? Have you run across a lot of that? Has it been, you know, for me, I've kind of been hit or miss. Some companies have been really great. Sometimes it's just one or two people. But how has it been working as a, a scenic designer in such prominent companies um, and having that interaction with people? I have to say it's really hit or miss, and it has nothing to do with the size of the company. Um, I had just over the past two years, two and a half years, it happened to me twice that I worked on two different productions uh, where I was a scenic designer, obviously female, and our costume designer was a man. Mm, that's, that's really and, cool. um, and it was two completely different opera companies of different sizes, but both prominent. And both of them, it was actually uncanny how re- similar it was. Um, on dress rehearsal, uh, the general directors of the companies came to me to give me dressing notes. And they were the ones who signed my contracts both times. So they did not even pay attention to who you were or what you were doing. They they were just, we were in a dress rehearsal and they just saw me behind the tech table. And it it was within, within a year and a half of each other, these incidents. And they came one time, you know, this general director came to me and said, well, you know, I think that the singer's arms look fat. I think you should put a sweater on it. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, well, first of all, that is absolutely not appropriate <laughs> to say. Correct. Correct. Um, and second of all, uh, the, our wonderful male costume designer is sitting right there, two, do- two rows down, and you're welcome to go give that note to him. Um, <laughs> and um, a similar thing happened a year and a half later in a different opera company with the general director 
during dress rehearsal came and told me that some shirt was not period or something like that, which was also not true. But I said, you're, uh, you're absolutely welcome to talk to our lovely male costume designer about that question. Um, and both times they were tremendously embarrassed. Um, yeah, because, imagine. you know, this was not a case of uh, premeditated, um, you know, degrading behavior. Um, it, it, it just showed how ingrained yes. the concept of a male scenic designer and female costume designer are that they, it was just second nature. They didn't mean it. They felt terribly embarrassed after that. Yeah. But that that's even more horrible in a way because you just it just shows you how ingrained it is in the highest ranks uh, of administration here in the United States. That's exactly how I feel. I don't. I've very very rarely come across a situation where I feel like they're being degrading to me because of who I am. It more has to do that. That's just how, like you said, it's ingrained. And I'll just notice people talking to me a certain way. And the first time it happened a few years ago, I didn't really think about it until my my um, scene shop manager came up to me who had overheard the conversation and he said, why do you let people talk to you like that? And I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, he was like, I asked him to explain. And he said, well, if you had been a male, that conversation never would have happened. Wow. And I was thinking about it and I'm like, that's a very good point. Cause he was like, you know, we had a male, they had a male director of production before me, you know, and a male TD. And he was like, these things have never come up. So he was like, he was more upset about this conversation that had happened than I was. And that's when I kind of realized that it was so ingrained in me to have to constantly have these conversations Mm -hmm. that I felt like it was normal until he pointed out the fact that it wasn't normal and that, you know, it was only happening because of the fact that I was Yeah, it's just it's just still very, very ingrained, you know, and I just got used to the fact that nine and a half times out of ten when I come to a meeting with the technical staff, production staff in regards to scenery that I design, I'm going to be the only woman in the room. Yep. It, nine, nine times out of 10, I would say I'm the only woman in the room. So everyone from the production managers to general directors to uh, TDs, um, assistant TDs, um, they're all guys. And I would be the only woman in the room. Um, and I, I just got used to the fact that the first third to a half of the meeting will be spent on me actually convincing them that I know what I'm doing. Yes. I, I, actually, um, I was just talking to my husband about this uh, last night that I'm running uh, East West Players' is Moving Warehouses and I'm in charge of it, but I'm the only female. Everybody mm-hmm. else that I've, almost everybody, there's been a couple of females I've brought in, but almost everyone else I've brought in are male, uh, almost everyone else who the company has brought in are male, and I constantly have to, like, prove I know what I'm doing. And most mm-hmm. of them are really good once they realize I know what I'm doing, they, yeah. you know, they're good with it. But yeah, I feel like every new company or every new group I get in with, I've got to prove that I, I know what I'm doing as a TD, even if I'm female. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. well, and that's the thing that I, ha- I have to say that Typically, once I prove to people that I know what I'm doing, they're good with it. I've, I've actually only once had an unpleasant experience with a production manager who was never convinced to the very end that I knew what I was doing and was extremely condescending, but he was of the older generation and unfortunately yeah. probably unfixed uh, at this point. Exactly. Um, 
but um, for the most part, I have to say that once we are past that hump, you know, once <laughs> once I convince people that I know what drafting is um, and how. <laughs> <laughs> you know what a fly rail is they're they're already very encouraged so yeah and they're usually already impressed <laughs> they're already impressed can you imagine she knows what a fly rail is that's incredible yeah. um, so yeah <laughs> but it's exhausting you know it's, it's it's just exhausting and it's unnecessary and i really wish that i could spend uh my energy uh, doing your job doing my job or you know yeah it's it's, it's just exhausting and it just feels like such a waste of time, you know, unfortunately. When do you think uh, that we'll get through that hump? Well, you, you just said something which I think I've said in a previous podcast about, you know, this specific guy being of an older generation. And that's kind of how I feel. I feel like there's kind of this loose line drawn and people who are over that line, we just can't really fix there's, there's, we're not going to yeah. ever change them because it is so ingrained. Yeah. But I do feel like our generation and hopefully the next few generations, it'll get fixed enough that eventually we won't have to deal with this anymore. I think so. I'm very hopeful of that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I'm very, very hopeful of that. And I see signs of that already. So it's, yeah. um, it's just hopefully it's just going to get better from here <laughs> on out. You know, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Have as you, as long as the rest of us you, keep pushing. Yeah. Have you run into many other female designers? Or, I mean, it's, I guess it's hard because in your case, just like as a stage manager, you don't really work with other designers because you are the designer. But what has your experience been? Have you seen more, and more female designers? Yes, I have definitely known uh, know of female scenic designers um, uh, and incredible ones. Um, the thing is that there are way fewer of them that remain in the profession past the age of 30. And yeah. that has to purely do with the fact that this profession is not suited for somebody with a family. Um, and uh, it's un unless you're extremely rich and can travel with a nanny or mm -hmm. your partner um, is a um, housewife or a house husband. Um, because especially working in opera, uh, as you know, Cindy, you, you're on the road all the time. Mm -hmm. um, you work incredibly long hours. Um, and that's just not an environment in which you can raise a baby unless you have a stable partner or you have enough money to hire a 24-7 nanny. And there are people who do that, but they're obviously in the minority. Um, mm -hmm. So while there are a lot of very, very talented young scenic designers, you know, that I went to school with and that have been working um, after school, the, most all of them phased out of the profession because they wanted a family. Um, and so that, I don't necessarily know how that could change. Um, yeah. Or if that will change. But I think that one of the reasons for there being so few uh, female designers, um, like female production designers and fe female designers in general is just, it's, it's because of the nature of the profession. That's true. Cause I don't see what we do ever changing to be a nine to five job. No, <laughs> That's the, I just, it's going to be hard. We actually talked to, um, Brett Finley a few months ago about that because she does have a, 
a daughter who's mm-hmm. early 30s now. And so we asked her how that, you know, how it affected her career. And she was telling us that she, they had, her and her husband had just moved to Michigan and they're working at Michigan University when she got pregnant and had the kid. And when I think Alex was about seven years old, Brett decided to go back on a road as a stage manager. Mm-hmm. She stayed home for those seven years and worked at the, the university, mm-hmm. but she realized that, you know, she missed being on the road. And so she did that. And she had the advantage that her husband was more than capable as men can be to raise a child while she was out on the road. But she said they got so much flack from family and friends accusing her of abandoning her child. Mm-hmm. But if it were switched and the man which happens often is the one that leaves for six weeks at a time. Nobody even bats an eyelash at it. So of course, of course, you know, it's like trying to, I just met in Portland. I met up with a friend from college. Who's the same thing. She's a stage manager. They have a two-year-old. Her husband is a a performer and sometimes they do shows together and everyone's always like, but who's watching the kid? And Mm -hmm. they're like, well, the dog's watching the kid. What do you mean? Who's watching the kid? Obviously someone's watching the child. I do not just leave the child at home by herself, you know, (laughs) But it's just everybody's opinion of it is is amazing to me. Yeah, and, yeah. and and that part I just don't know how to will ever shift. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very true. Thankfully, I don't want children, so hopefully, likewise. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we work a hundred hours a week because <laughs> those are our children. <laughs> uh, I I think I really only have one more question i mean yeah. i have like a million questions but i know it'll yeah, continue it was like, on forever you only ever have one more question <laughs> i know i just get so excited when i talk to people and when i talk to people that are so passionate about what they do that it gets me very excited the last question i totally forgot to warn you about because my mind has been in a million places but because this is twins talk theater we always mm-hmm. ask if you have a twin story have you ever did you grow up with twins have you ever worked with twins even in the theater people that you've had to like make look like twins just anything that you know I've never worked with twins but I always dreamt to uh, direct or design uh, or both uh, a piece with twins because I think it can be just so uh, absolutely remarkable to to do that and I hope that it will happen one day <laughs> you know just because yeah if it's, if it's especially if they're identical twins um you know singers or um uh, performers or dancers i think that the possibilities of that would be just incredible um in in a live stage setting so i yeah. very much look forward to that happening one day <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Vita, for joining us. We're going to hopefully get David on uh, maybe once his show's done. Yeah, I'm sure you will. Yeah, yeah, yes. (laughs) Yeah, we'd love to hear more about projections and design because uh, I've done a few pieces, one only opera, but I've done some projection art festivals Mm -hmm. that have me so excited about it. And so I'd love to talk to him about how he got into it and how he sees that, you know, in being incorporated into our opera world more and more which is yeah I can, well, mm-hmm. okay. and I think that you know one of the incredible things that are very rare about what David does is because he's a musician his projections are extremely uh, music sensitive and I actually yes. saw there was this one review that came out of Faust and I think they said something like that they were eerily precise 
<laughs> timing of the projections was eerily precise. And I think that's exactly it because the vast majority of projection designers come either from the fine art world or they come from the technical world of programmers that then decide to become video designers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, but it hardly ever these people are musicians. And so designing yes. video for opera without having a music background, you immediately see that. I, I feel the same way with lighting designers as well. Yeah, that's true. Because it is so, in opera, it is so musically oriented that when I start working with somebody during tech and I I see their cues or they tell me where they want the cues to be placed in the score, mm-hmm. I can constantly see if they're a music person or not because sometimes cues just feel natural and other times the cues just feel off. They're too early or they're too late. And I can't explain it to somebody who's not a music person to just say what well, that yeah. doesn't feel right because that's not the language yeah. they understand. But with David, they don't feel it. Yeah. yeah, that never happened. Every single one of those cues just felt right. Or if it didn't feel right, we talked about it and, and it came together. But it was probably one of the best experiences for me just because he, he is a singer and he is an opera person. And he, I, I keep explaining to people that it just, he felt or we felt music the same and yeah. we felt the piece the same. And so even though there was, I don't know, hundreds of cues to call, they just <laughs> felt right. And there were even moments where I didn't have to look at my score I mean, I did for the actual numbers, yeah. but then I just feel when the cue had to happen because, yeah. you know, you feel it with the musicians and you feel it with the conductor. And, you know, if you have a really good designer that you're working with, it all just kind of seamlessly goes together, as you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I think that in that sense, um, that was one of the reasons that Faust felt like such a complete piece, you know, where you couldn't really tell where lighting begins and where mm-hmm. videos stands and how it's all connecting to scenery and to movement of performance on stage and I'm, I'm very proud of what we achieved there I think it was a really special show yeah, yeah I thought it was, it was gorgeous I- when we watched we were there uh, my husband and I were there on opening night and I spent half the time just watching the set move slowly and the projections change and how it went with the music and it was amazing when the flowers oh, started you. dying as soon as the actor pulled them I was like, oh, my God, how long did that take to practice and get set up and work so that it just looks seamless through the whole thing? It was gorgeous. Yeah. Cindy, was that a visual cue with the flowers? Um, the flower petals? I don't remember. When Cybele would uh, kind of take the flowers out and the video would portray yeah, the flowers wilting. I have a place on music cues, but I did watch them visually because the because we had so little time to practice that with the devils, they didn't always pick it at the right time. Um, So it was kind of both. I would watch and feel and call it when it felt right to me. (laughs) But that's why stage managers are also extremely crucial in making the production seamless, you know. And I also have a stage management background, as I told you briefly before. I worked as a stage manager at the New Israeli Opera for two years. And um, that, that experience taught me so much about the backstage machinery of the theater and how important, um, calling the show is and how it can make it or break it. And so I really appreciate what you did. It was just really, really precise. It was great. Very musical. Thanks. I totally forgot that you worked as a stage manager. Yeah, what, what made you do that? 
Um, well, Why would you do I, so gradu- I graduated with uh, an undergrad degree in set and costume design in Tel Aviv, um, uh-huh. and I was looking for a job. And um, I learned <laughs> that the um, uh, New Israeli Opera is looking for uh, props people. And I thought that they meant props manufacturers. And I'm really good with my hands. I love creating mm-hmm. things. And I thought, oh, my God, it would be amazing to go to the opera and create props for the opera and it's great and I went to the opera to interview I brought my big portfolio you know and I go to Mm -hmm. the prop shop and they look at me and they're like we don't need props people who told you that we need props people and I said well that person said and uh, they said well maybe they need props operators and I I was like what's a prop operator I've never even heard of that (laughs) and they're like well it's you know in big operas when there's a lot of props there is a props operator backstage that sorts the props out and gives the props to the correct performers and all that and I really needed a job and I was already at the opera house so I just went upstairs (laughs) to the stage management office and I was like do you guys need props operators (laughs) (laughs) anybody does anybody want to hire me (laughs) yeah and and they are like sure you know so I interviewed there and so with their stage manager there and they gave me that job and so I worked as a props operator um, on two productions and then they asked me if I want to be an assistant stage manager on the next production and I said well I've never done that before you know and they said well we see that you're very organized and you're very musical and we can teach you the paperwork end of things that's totally what it is if you can read music and you're organized i'll teach you everything else you need to know exactly and that's how it works so they just taught me and then i was an assistant stage manager in a few productions and and they promoted me to be the the psm and um, in israel um, it's two different jobs so there is a uh, stage manager kind of runs the room and then there is the DSM the dispatcher stage manager that calls the show so it's two different positions mm-hmm. um, I like and so I did dispatcher both dispatcher stage manager yeah. I'm going to start calling yeah. you that Cindy that's <laughs> <laughs> very you're, they do that in uh, most of Europe I believe yeah, it's very different it. in the United States mm-hmm. and you you enjoyed it? I enjoyed it very much um, while I was doing that because um Israeli opera is the only opera house in the Middle East, and they used to bring the most incredible opera productions from all over the world. And I just got to work with the most fantastic directors and designers and singers, and it was a really exciting environment to be in. Um, But after about a year and a half, I felt that I want to continue my studies as a designer for a master's Mm -hmm. degree, and I started to look at grad schools, um, and eventually ended up doing a a double major at NYU at Tisch School of the Arts in production design for film and costume design for stage and film and um, I studied set design for my undergrad in Tel Aviv so I ended up studying both for both Um, and um, that's how I ended up in the States but you know these two years of experience that I got as as a stage manager as a props operator as an assistant stage manager um, informs everything I do because I know what people who make the show run need yes you know yeah and, and how to design sets in such a way that the transitions could work, even if they're challenging, they're not impossible. You know, I always think on that other side of the people who are actually going to m- make the show happen, assemble it, disassemble it, load it in the truck, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a so. big one. I feel like uh, as a tech person, and I also do some design work, I'm always thinking about, you know, how big is a sheet of plywood? How is it going to get mm-hmm. on the truck? How is it going to break apart? Uh, how many people is it going to take to make? And so many designers, I'm like, you you designed this flat four foot three? Like, 
Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and we round it up. <laughs> yeah, or down or something because cutting a three inch piece of wood and then building the flat to work on that. Yeah. 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 Not I necessary. Just, <laughs> right. Exactly. I say kind of the uh, the counter to what you say, I really appreciate, I have an undergraduate degree just in theater from a tiny, tiny school, but because it was so small, I spent four years working in a costume shop and I spent, you know, a couple years working in the scenic shop and I lit a few shows and I know how to um, hang and focus lights. And I took a couple, you know, costume and makeup classes, but because of that, I feel it's made me a stronger stage manager because then I know how to communicate with them and I kind of know what they need in order to get their job done. And I think exactly. it's just a perfect relationship because then there's no miscommunication and there's mm -hmm. less um, unneeded stress if we just yeah, know what each absolutely. other needs. You know? And I don't, you know, I try not to get a big head and be like, well, this is how it has to be done because I know everybody works differently. And if this is how you need to work as a designer, then let me give you what you need in order to make that happen because there's no need to argue with you about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the more rounded the education of people who are going to work in film and live, live performance can mm -hmm. be, the better, the more everybody will benefit, you know, yeah, because it is absolutely. such a collaborative art form Yeah, that the more everybody knows what the other people are doing, the more successful it will be. So yay for collaboration. Yay. <laughs> yay for collaboration. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much. It was great talking to you both. Thank yeah, you. Too. And thanks for uh, helping us figure out how to get this on while you're in the middle of a glimmer glass right now. Well, I'm just glad it worked. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Us too. Thank you so much, Vita. Uh, I'll talk to you soon, I hope. Yes, talk to you soon. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at twinstalktheater. Title music, Dance Macop, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.